This was edamame. And then there was some cucumbers over there. That was my father's Jeep. He had that long time. And so, yeah, so I, I used to go with my father when I was real young to the farm. And I guess as young, you know, real little, I remember sitting on his lap on the driving the tractor. So yeah, I guess that's pretty small. <laughs> Russell Keith Tanita, who goes by Rusty, is a descendant of the original Japanese-American farmer who settled in Arizona in the early 1900s. My father had 11 brothers and one sister. So, yeah, 13. Wow. Yeah. His grandfather, Naomasa Tanita, originally from Fukushima, Japan, first immigrated to California and moved to Arizona in 1928. He and his wife, Sui Matsumoto, had one daughter and 12 sons, including Rusty's father, Kiyoshi. Over the years, the family farmed in Grendale and West Phoenix area. Uh, I remember they were saying it was 3,500 acres that they farmed. Well, they really grew like the, one of the largest farmers in, in, in Arizona. Yeah, so they grew mixed vegetables. So. By the 1960s, Tanita Farm became the largest grower and shipper of mixed vegetables in the state of Arizona. There was probably like 30, 40 different kinds of vegetables, I think. So we grew, I know, well, carrots was big, green onions, spinach, cabbage. We did the leaf lettuces, uh, the greens like mustard, turnip collards, kale, cilantro, beets, and cantaloupes honeydews, and watermelons. And then we shipped a lot of out-of-state, I mean, I mean all, all over the country, so, yeah. So I think I heard that not all the farmers do the uh, whole process. Sometimes they are just uh, growers. But I, I heard that the Tanita Farms does more than that. Oh, yeah, so we were known as grower, packer, shipper. So I know we grew, like, uh, a lot of vegetables that came out to about three and a half million packages a year so yeah <laughs> and then so it takes a lot of people to do that the farm at its peak had a massive scale of operation we had a lot of labor contractors probably like a hundred and over a hundred people in the green onions and then there was probably like 25 people in the greens and probably about 25 or so in the lettuce and then there was probably another 25 or 30 weeding and thinning and that kind of stuff. But then when we got certain crops and there was like, I remember sometimes there'd be like, I want to say, you know, over a thousand people working. Packing and shipping also required a large operation. Yeah, so we had a, our own ice plant. I think it was, a, I think it was like a 150 ton storage and a hundred, maybe it's 120 ton that would produce per day or something like that. But I remember we would run out occasionally, and um, then we'd always have to buy these 300-pound blocks of ice, and we'd throw it in these grinders, and we'd shoot the ice in the trucks or, you know, or use it for packing, too. Yeah. Okay, so when I was younger, this is probably uh, like 15, 16, but I, I remember... I used to go work in the packing shed, and we'd um, have to unload the trucks, and we'd have to take the product and ice them, cool them down, and then we'd have to palletize them and put them in the coolers and stuff like that. And yeah, we'd 
I don't know how many trucks a day we would load, but uh, it, was, it was quite a few. I think we had like three different uh, coolers at the farm. And they're, they're pretty big, yeah, because you drive the forklift in and out. There. Sometimes you don't get day off. And you see October, September, October, probably October, they would harvest cucumbers, then they switched to honeydews. But then in June, my father would also start planting all the other vegetables, so it just got heavier and heavier. Walk hours were extremely long, especially during the harvesting seasons. I remember we'd have to punch a time card, and so I think I, I would come in 7 or 8 o'clock, 8 o'clock probably, and then, then I'd punch out, and I, I wouldn't punch out till like uh, 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock in the morning, like 110 hours, 112 hours, you know, like that's per week I, I would work, <laughs> yeah. Despite long hours of work, the family always managed to spend quality time together. Rusty remembers spending a fun time with his cousins. When it was July, August, then then uh, it slows down, and then we used to take kind of like a vacation. So a lot of my uncles, cousins would go up to Sedona. We had a trailer up there, and 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 then there was a bunch of bunk beds, so a bunch of families would go up there and stay all, all summer long. It'd be people in and out. It's funny because they had that, and then. They had a, on the farm by one of my uncle's house, they built a swimming pool, like a facility, and then they had a shuffleboard, they had volleyball, and they had all this other stuff for us kids to play at. So growing up, we I used to hang out with my cousins at the pool. So it was, it was kind of nice growing up, I guess. Rusty's father belonged to a strong community of Japanese farmers. A person-to-person relationship supported their business. If I wanted to find my father, I'd go to this place called The Range on Grand Avenue. He'd be there, a few of my uncles would be there, and there'd be a bunch of different Japanese farmers there, and they'd just be hanging out, and then a little later they'd take off and go back to their farms and go do some other stuff. And then um, then it's funny because I remember my father would take off around nine or ten, something like that. And there's another coffee shop in Litchfield. And so he hung out there for a while. And I guess there were some Japanese people that came there too. And No, then we got together my uncle's for lunch. Usually Wednesdays and Fridays, they'd always tell me, hey, we're going to, like, I know always, every Wednesday was Chinese food. So we always go to this Chinese restaurant every Wednesday. And every Friday was Mexican food, so we'd go every Friday. <laughs> then pretty soon my other cousins <laughs> found out about it. They they would come over and <laughs> hang out. But yeah, so I remember there would be some different buyers and people, friends and suppliers that you know might come to lunch and stuff. It was easier, I guess, with uh, there were so many Japanese farmers. Maybe to, they had a better marketing system, and there was more buyers. And now they kind of got corporate farms. Rusty's mother also maintained a close relationship with the Japanese community. She used to gather with a group of Japanese women to make tsukemono, pickled vegetables and fruits. So growing up, my mother had, I think, three apricot trees. And um, when we were young, she would have us pick the apricots green 
kind of green. And uh, she would take them, wash them, and then salt them, and then for I don't know how many days, and then they would uh, put in brine and uh, make umeboshi. I know they put shiso and I forget what else in there. And uh, yeah, they, but they made oh, all kinds of skimono here. Yeah, I thought apricot was umeboshi, not plum. <laughs> Growing up. Rusty recalls the time when he learned how hard his family needed to work to reach the success that they achieved. Yeah, I think they were hard workers, yeah. I guess as young, you know, real little, I remember I had a cousin, uh, his name was Glenn, and I think we had uh, wanted to make some money, so we started working on the farm. Like, I think we were uh, like nine or ten years old back then. So I should have learned then I shouldn't have farmed because, <laughs> because um, our first job was working in carrots. And so back in the 60s, everything was handwork. So we had to pull the carrots out by hand and break off the tops and put in these bushel baskets and then fill them up and dump it into gunny sacks. And then they'd pay you by the gunny sacks. And, I forgot, it was like either 10 or 15 cents a, a bag. So we're, we're, yeah, it was, it was a lot of work for us kids. And according to, I, <laughs> I guess my my mom and my aunties, they said, oh, they used to come out and help us. But she says, oh, they used to do more work than we did when <laughs> working over there. So, you know, you know, Japanese kind of got hard-headed too, right? So. <laughs> did you see that in your parents? Oh, yeah. I, I, uh, my uncles too. I, they're, they're, they were tough to work for. Yeah, they're very difficult. They ask you a lot too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They. It's funny because I was since I was harvesting, the product would come to the shed, and if it didn't look right, my uncle would call me. He goes, "Hey, get over here!" And he'd yell and cuss at me and scream at me and say, "Hey, look, you know better than this." And then he did that like on a weekly basis for I don't know how long but then one time I remember he was yelling at me and it was a different farmer that brought a product in and he was telling me hey I thought I told you I says hey that's not from me that's from somebody else and <laughs> but yeah I'd weigh all you know I had to weigh all the boxes all the time and I'd take them out count them make sure all the counts right and make sure the bunches are right and if not, I'd tear all the bunches up and make them do them over. And I was like, I, I can't believe I did that, you know, but I, I guess I did that for quite a few years. So. In 1942, when people of Japanese ancestry living on the West Coast were forcibly removed from their homes and incarcerated, Arizona became a divided region due to the so-called exclusion line. People who lived on one side of the street could stay, but people who lived on the other side of the street were uprooted. Yeah, I used to hear stories. Um, like, uh, there's that road called, it's Grand Avenue. So I guess if you lived north of it, you didn't have to go to internment camp. And if you lived south of it, I think you did have to go. Or, uh, But I'm, yeah, so I guess... It was it was kind of tough because yeah, I think all my uncles and my dad they all went to the service too at that time to enlist in the whatever army or yeah. 
the exclusion line started at Grand Avenue on the west side, continued to Van Buren Street in Phoenix, and then to Mill Avenue to Apache Boulevard in Tempe, which is right next to Arizona State University, and continue on to Main Street in Mesa, where ASU's film school is now located. It is hard to believe that people's lives were completely altered depending on which side of the street they lived. I think we were on the, the side where we didn't, they didn't have to go internment on my father's side, but my mother's side, they had to move to Colorado to, and then to Greeley. Then they took my grandfather on my mother's, my grandfather on my mother's side. Uh, he went to prison because I guess he was a leader in the Japanese community. And I know my grandmother, so my mother's mother, she's Nisei. She translated for uh, the government, you know, because they are asking these questions to all these Japanese people, yeah. Even though his father's family was able to stay and continue farming, their daily activities were limited and they were confronted by the prejudice that existed in the neighborhood. So I remember, this is a long time ago, when I was working for my father, there was a, a company that sold diesel. I, I said, hey, uh, this uh, one company has diesel for a cheaper price. And I was telling my uncle, and he goes, no, we don't buy from anybody else. I go, so I said, well, why is that? <laughs> so he says, because these guys helped us during the war when nobody would sell us fuel. They sold it to us, so I said, oh, okay, so I never asked again, yeah, so. To fight against prejudice, Japanese children often formed friendship with children from other immigrant communities. There was this uh, Glendale High School here, and they used to tell me stories where, uh, you know, they get picked on, but then they had these friends that were from Russia, so these Russians were huge, huge guys are like, you know, six something and they're really strong. And so I guess they, they hung out a lot. And they were farmers too. So there's a lot of connection between the Russian farmers and the Japanese farmers. In the 1970s, the farm started to face challenges of keeping its sides. Oh, I remember one year when my father was farming, there was a time when Jimmy Carter was in office, I remember. But they had lost a lot of money and they had to go borrow, like, I forget how many, I must have been a million dollars or more back then. But um, but uh, my uncles had to all come together and go to the bank and sign off their houses to get the loan. So all my mom and my aunties were all worried because if they didn't pay it back then they'd lose their houses something much yeah the family eventually decided to split the farm among the siblings this is probably mid-70s there was uh i think there was eight of them farming i had one uncle that was a pharmacist in california and one uncle in colorado that was in sporting goods and the, there were two others that passed away, but the eight that remained, so they split the farm in half. 
But yeah, I, I remember um, after it split, my father told me to go to my uncle's. He goes, hey, go see your Uncle Tom. He's got this equipment pile, and I want you to go bring me back. All the stuff I go. And this is after they split everything. I, I, I said, you sure that's okay, Dad? He goes, oh, yeah, just go over there. <laughs> so I, I, I felt funny because I was taking stuff from their side and bringing it over. And so I, so I did talk to my uncle. I goes, oh, yeah, go over there and take it. So I, so I said, okay. So, yeah. I think it took almost two years to split everything up or something like that. In the 1980s, as the city started to develop and the third-generation children left home, the retired family members began to sell their lands. On my generation, they, they encouraged everybody to kind of go to school and get a different job because uh, farming was a tough business, very tough. After about 1985, I think the land prices went up quite a bit, so that's when my father and then they sold a lot of the land and they kind of got out of farming. Except for one uncle, he stayed in it and he's the one that had the 5,000 acres down there. But uh, and um, my other uncles that, on the other split, they s sold a lot of property too and they, they retired because uh, people were building houses, people were moving to Arizona, so prices of land went way high and I think um, that's that's when they thought it was a good idea to get out. So, so I think 1985 was kind of like the, I guess, end of the the era, the farming. But then that's actually when I started to farm on my own from then. Yeah. While many of his relatives left farming. Rusty started his own farm. I asked why he decided to continue farming. You have to have, the, I guess, the passion to it because if you, I mean, you gotta. There's a lot of ups and downs, and it's. I mean, it's 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 very difficult sometimes. You have crop failures sometimes, or not crop failure, but yeah, you have problem with like sometimes it might be bugs, sometimes it might be disease or weather could be anything, and then. You have to kind of weather that. And then on the other end, you have to worry about the market. If the market's not there, then you lose money too. So. And you purchased new land or how? Oh, no. So um, actually, we leased some property. And then I, I had to go out and get equipment and borrow money and do all this other stuff. It was, it was real tough. I was in debt for years and years and years. It was hard. But uh, it's, it's a real challenge for any farmer. The change was coming not only to Tanita Farms, but also to many others. One by one, Rusty witnessed Japanese farmers closing down their farms. I had a friend, he was on Nisei. I forgot what year it was, he was uh, finished farming. It must have been early 2000 sometime, but when he quit farming, he told me, he goes, okay, you're the last Japanese-American farmer over here. You, you know, I don't know if he meant that I should be carrying on the tradition or what, but uh, yeah, that's what he told me at the end. When he started his own farm, 
Without much help, he needed to do everything on his own from assembling equipment to building a greenhouse. He kept his operations small and gradually built a relationship with new types of Japanese buyers. I guess I just kind of grow what I feel more comfortable with. So, like, uh, I know watermelons are pretty easy to sell, so I grow that. And then I had some Japanese people come here, actually, from Japan, and there was a bunch of them, and I would grow some daikon, shingiku, um, cucumbers for the Japanese here, Japanese-American, and they wanted to make pickles, so we grew these Armenian cucumbers. I grew a little patch, and I'd take it over there, and then they'd pickle it. I ask how he feels if nobody takes over the farm. It's my uh, daughter. Uh, <laughs> she comes out here once in a while. <laughs> but she, I think I'd be happy if she was happy what she did. You know, if that's 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 what it should be. You know, I don't want her dream to be my dream. So she's got to go find her own way. Yeah, it just happened to be mine was farming, and I stuck in it, stayed in it. So. He now welcomes and helps new types of farmers who move into the neighborhood. It's, I think it's changed because as far as Japanese, I don't think there's as much interest, but um, maybe more, I know there's more Caucasians in farming than I've seen. And I know there's a lot more Hispanics in agriculture too. Yeah. I had this one person, I don't want to, mention his name, but he, he wanted to farm out here. And, um, I think he went to school, agricultural school, and he, um, he came out, I think, late spring, so I said, grow watermelons, and so he did, but he didn't know how to drive a tractor, he didn't know how to plant, he didn't know how to cultivate, he didn't know how to fertilize, and I said, oh gosh, it's like... <laughs> Yeah, so I had to had to show him how to do all that stuff too. Yeah. Then, then how do you know the watermelon's right? I go, <laughs> so you know, you have to you have to show him that too. Yeah. You think your father is gonna be happy to see you, you know, doing this still? He's probably saying bakatare, you know, something like that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Hard to say. <laughs> Bakatare means idiot. Rusty said his father would call him stupid for continuing farming, but what I felt in his words were his genuine love and family pride for farming. Before I left, he showed me a thick handmade cookbook that his aunts put together to commemorate the reunion that the family held in 1987. The book is dedicated to their grandmother, Sui Matsumoto Tanita. It contains a history of Tanita farm and cooking recipe that the grandmother enjoyed cooking. It also includes lyrics from the Tanita family song. It reads, We are the family of Tanitas. Our family is the best. The legacy and spirit of Japanese-American pioneers are still alive in this small farm in northwest Phoenix, Arizona.
This episode was produced by Reina Higashitani, supported by Arizona State University's Haberger Institute Research Building Investment Grant. Music is composed by Aiko Fukushima, edited and sound mixed by Christine Park and Reina Higashitani. This is Chasing Cherry Blossoms, reframing American history through the Japanese experience. <laughs>